don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 48 and today we are talking about Walkabout from 1971 directed by Nicholas Rogue, another Australian film. Uh, so last week we had The Last Wave, which was a Australian-made film, so we were just sort of hanging around uh, down under uh, for another week. And this is a film that, uh, unlike last week, I, I sort of made the criticism that The Last Wave kind of was, was dragging in spots. This one moves at a pretty brisk pace, um, and we'll talk about why I think that is, but the, not only does it move at like a pretty pretty brisk pace, like I was saying, but it's also really beautiful to look at in a lot of in a lot of spots um and has a message about civilization specifically western white civilization that i think is uh awesome and important and and impossible to miss yes definitely uh yeah and and so rogue if i'm not mistaken is a british director who's working in australia on on location Mm -hmm. peter weir's a is an australian um, who Peter, who made uh, the last wave? So, I don't, I don't really know how you. Is it an Australian film? Film if it's made by a British director, or is it a British film? I don't, I don't or know. British Australian, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how that's typically classified, but uh, yeah, it's very, uh, like I said, very on the nose, very. Uh, transparent with what it's trying to do and uh, as is true with uh, rogues follow-up don't look now he's sort of using the kind of new flashy techniques in cinema to tell very old stories uh, for instance in don't look now it's sort of a critique of Western rationalism specifically a sort of epistemological uh, axe to grind and in walkabout it's it's more general it's just like uh, the oppressive nature of Western civilization the repression inherent in Western civilization but he's doing he's telling this sort of story in service of uh, you know in quotes primitive or traditional cultures um, in w- with with very modern or postmodern techniques. Yeah, it's it's very hey, get a load of this society mm-hmm. film, and uh, just a, but it's also it's also very hey, get a load of this camera trick. Oh yeah, and there are a lot of um, kind of jarring camera moves. Um, mm-hmm. I'm thinking specifically like there's a scene uh, sort of toward the end when the little boy is looking around, and every time he looks at something, it'll be like a flock of birds flying away and then it stops. And it's just like a still image for a second. And then, Oh yeah. Like there's cuts. a few, a few sections like that. And the, all the hunting scenes are very like chaotic and kinetic. Um, both when you have the young Aboriginal boy and then you have the white hunters that show up later in the film. Uh, those scenes are very, you know, very fast and like disorienting and, and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, one connection to make before we start, talking about the plot of the film is uh, I was looking at, you know, they have the criterion has different directors do their top 10 sort of Mm. top 10 films in the criterion collection. Uh, 
Uh, Kelly Riker did it, and her number nine was Walkabout. Interesting. So it's a film that she's a big fan of. She mentions in her little the little blurb that she wrote for it that it was a big inspiration for a scene in Meek's Cutoff. Both kind of desert films, open open sky. Yeah, and it mentioned that her and uh, John Jonathan Raymond, who writes a lot of the screenplays or co-writes them with her, uh, rewatched this film Walkabout as a sort of inspiration for for uh, Meek's Cutoff. Um, so a, a direct connection to a, another director that we're big fans of here at the show. Did you did you see on the Criterion app? There's a category now that just is is called a uh, Kelly Reichardt esque. <laughs> no, but that's awesome and well deserved. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now I have to check that out. Um, you know, as always, we're just like th- this podcast is going to become like a Criterion fanboy podcast. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm assuming that First Reformed will get a Criterion release, at which point. That's all we'll talk about, which, you know, what has, has come out is uh, Roma finally got its uh, criterion release. And we need to we need to do that one. We need to do specifically the criterion release of Roma, not just Roma. We'll talk about the extras and everything. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we we have a plan for next week with the week after sometime. It will definitely do that because I, I need to rewatch that movie anyway. Yeah. Uh, I've only seen it the one time, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it's definitely worth a rewatch or seven. Yeah. Um, it's but, no green book, but yeah, <laughs> no green book. Uh, it didn't solve racism. So, but the, the film at hand walkabout, I guess we can just jump right into it and let's just talk about walkabout. <laughs> uh, let's talk about it. And so he, he what what i mean is the father i want to talk about the father uh figure in the film <laughs> sorry i was just start talking about <laughs> anyway, a character with no introduction I, yeah man, he uh i've been cooped up in the house been cooped up in the house wiping my ass with leaves just yeah uh, but now i was looking at my notes and got distracted by my own handwriting um but i, I want to start with the father because he's a pretty pivotal character in the film even though he's only in it for maybe 10 minutes um, in the the whole opening sequence, which is really like you want to talk about something being like jarring uh, and really kind of visceral, that opening sequence is very sort of you know throws you off from the very beginning. Um, you mean in in the city or the suicide? Uh, just the well the, that that whole I consider that like one whole you know uh, yeah, yeah. sort of climbing action kind of sequence. Yeah, how the how the kids get to the the outback. Yeah. Um, which it's not really, it's not made very clear. And that's sort of a, a thing in this film is anything that is, well, well, most things in it, but especially things that are connected to civilization seem very confusing um, and confused. And so those opening scenes we have in the, the, you know, their home when the girl's listening to her cooking radio show and the boys like being crazy and running around. Um, and then when they get to the desert, it's, it's sort of similar, like, why are they even here in the first place? And the father's reading his like geology article. Um, it's all very like, you're not really sure what's happening. And it seems very, the, all three of the family members seem like weirdly disconnected and they're not really communicating. And then this 
you know, insane thing happens, which is the father trying to shoot the children and then shooting himself after he burns the car. Yeah. Not, not before, uh, he gets a chance to very creepily sneak a peek. It seems like he's checking out his daughter. Yeah. That, I was going to ask about that. Cause that was very odd. Well, and, and I think that is a, um, as sort of recalled later when you, when you see the scientists just sort of out in the outback. And I think there's one woman in the group and the guy keeps trying to like sneak a peek down her shirt. Um, and of course it's tied into these larger themes of like repression and, and all that stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I, I just thought it was, it seemed very intentional at the beginning and, but more important, I think it, it, uh, kind of softens the blow when he, like we kind of know he's supposed to die. You know, he has to do this creepy thing that way. We're like, Oh, he's kind of, he's the bad guy. He's a perv. Um, and so it, it, it takes a little of the ambiguity out of his death or the moral ambiguity out of his death. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to, to read into what he's doing before that, which is reading this geology, scholarly article structural geology i think is part of the title yeah and he's like looking at a list of minerals and like marking them off for some reason i don't really know what he's doing and i was trying to make some sort of connection of like i don't know like some sort of climate change connection or even if he's like invested in some sort of mining because mining comes up later in the film or something like that but it seems like he's just sort of painted as being generally kind of insane maybe like driven insane by you know having to live in this society that is so sort of delusional made or at least well, presented as such in the film it's a society of distance from nature especially seen through quantification uh you know the fact that he's he's reading about you know, the earth in, in this sort of academic, um, language, structural geology, and he's checking off all these things. Uh, and you, you see earlier, he's like making his daughter listen to these like, uh, etiquette tapes or something, you know, she's like rehearsing etiquette. Um, She's listening to a tape about how to prepare a specific kind of how a specific kind of like bird is prepared. And they mentioned that they drown it in cognac. Mm. Which was I didn't I didn't hear that. Yeah. Either way, it's just very sort of societal, you know, upper Mm -hmm. crust societal stuff. And and so, yeah, I think we're supposed to see his suicide as at the hands of distance from the earth sort of ideological distance from the earth. Absolutely. And I think that what I was talking about, the the bird and the cognac is important because food is a big part of that in in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, specifically sort or most bluntly, you have the scene where you have the, the young boy or the Aboriginal boy kind of slaughtering the kangaroo and it's paralleled with a butcher shop. Yeah. You get the, and then also you see him like using a kangaroo tendon to like make a, he's making a spear or something. 
And as he's like making this thing and checking it and it with you like holding it and looking down and to make sure it's straight and all that, the little boy is listening to like some sort of math lesson on the yeah. radio. So it's sort of these, you're getting these parallel uh, versions of like uh, food and cooking and then of, of sort of craftsmanship and design sort of paralleling each other. Here, my, my main critique of the film is, so is it's uh, uh, it doesn't seem to really trust the viewer to make the connections. Uh, it's a little too ham handed. It's like <clears throat> there's a shot in a butcher shop at the beginning. And, and then like you said, you see this kangaroo butchering, like we're going to get that, but rogue sort of intercuts or, you know, splices together these shots of, the kangaroo being slaughtered and then the butcher shop. It's like, we, we get it. That's why you showed it to us in the first two minutes of the movie. Um, and that to me, that's kind of how the, the ending felt too. It's just very, um, a little too emphatic. Like we, we would have understood the message of the film without it being so apparent. Yeah, it's it's definitely not really a subtle film no. when it when it comes to tr- trying to get these big messages across. Um, and like the the guy that the kids find, like when they walk on the road and they find this little, the little town at the end, mm-hmm. and the guy who like wants them to get off the lawn or not the little kid to not touch whatever it is the little boy is touching on his lawn, like that that guy is just so over the top. Yeah, it's like when civilization, when it's present, is either uncaring and sort of apathetic or it's just directly sort of uh, suicidal. (laughs) Well, suicidal and and antagonistic because that guy is basically saying, like, go away. And the girl's asking him, like, when the car will come back or whatever. And he's like, I don't know, maybe later. uh," And um, it's just like whenever they do encounter this thing that they've been sort of longing for specifically the girl like kind of longing for wanting to go back to um it's just sort of seems like it doesn't give a shit that they've been gone at all Mm -hmm. uh which is you know true for the most part um but yeah it's not it's not a subtle message to have these sort of emissaries of that world all be either suicidal and homicidal or be just sort of completely uncaring to these children you know, it's almost like it, it's so, um, especially the father, the father <clears throat> is so, I don't even know what word to use. It's just like exaggerated or, or directly representative of this sort of homicidal nature of, of uh, you know, whatever he represents, Western man. It's... <clears throat> he he's more a symbol than a character you know like oh patriarchal you know science and technology driven culture will try to kill you and then it will kill itself is kind of <laughs> you know how this movie starts yeah yeah and then even when they meet the the uh aboriginal boy 
uh, who is once again David Gopalil, um, who was in uh, the last wave, and as we talked about, seems to sort of be the Aboriginal actor that sort of has been in a lot of things. Um, even he's sort of uh, he, <clears throat> he he comes into his own sort of as a character when we start to sort of see him as as sort of being deeper than we do initially. But in the beginning, he's just sort of like just the stereotypical sort of like Aboriginal kind of like noble savage wandering around. And now he's going to help these kids. Um, mm. And from the very beginning, you have this strange thing that's reminiscent of what you're talking about with the the father and the and like looking at his daughter's body in this weird kind of suggestive way. You have the daughter now looking at this Aboriginal boy and sort of uh, at first she's sort of like looking at his he has like the lizards around his belt that he's sort of carrying that he's going to cook later. But she also sort of looking at him in a similar sort of sexualized kind of way or at least like in a sort of um, uh, maybe sexualized isn't the right word, but Ob- definitely objective, like, a, yeah, like, like objectivizing kind of way. way. Yeah. Um, and, and that continues on to where, you know, there's a scene where he's laying down, they're like going to sleep and she's kind of staring at him. Um, so there is a, the, definitely a sort of like physical attraction sort of thing going on there. Um, which is, but it's, fine, it, it's but. really, it, it really seems to be about, to me, it seems like rogue is talking about the problems that, um, that sort of, uh, I guess you might call it like visual repression have. It's like, you know, you see the, the women in the Aboriginal tribe, you go around topless and, and, you know, a lot of the younger people are just completely, uh, nude. And you, you see there's, there's this, uh, sort of oppressive mystique created by this, um, by covering every part of your body at all times. Um, I think that's what is maybe being hinted at with the, uh, especially with the scientists little, you know, the little interlude with the scientists in the outback. Um, and you see it's cause it's not just the daughter. It's her, her brother, you know, seven year old boy who's also looking at, you know, the Aboriginal boy or man, I'm not sure how old he's supposed to be. Um, he's looking at his ass too. You know, it's like, it's like, Oh, this is just, this is not normal for them. And so you can't help but do it. But to the people in his tribe, it's, I mean, it's just unthinkable to, for that to cause any sort of scandal the same way, you know, the women walking about, uh, (laughs) walking about (laughs) topless is no, no cause for scandal. Um, and so like we were talking about before the sort of scandalized scandalizing elements of, of the, the white actress, uh, being topless or nude is sort of, you know, you're supposed to sort of, uh, think about this in the context of the tribal, uh, cultures, customs as well. Yeah. It's meant to be sort of, the way I thought of it, especially there's a scene where she's like swimming nude and it's cut against, you know, him doing different hunting and things like that. It's meant, I think it, I read it as being more sort of ecstatic 
meaning a sort of like ecstasy of being in this sort of Edenic setting of being in the wild and swimming. Just, uh, just freedom. Yeah. Um, because, I, because there's a, it, it seems like the mystique I was talking about that's created, which is like a, a kind word for what I mean, um, is, uh, it, it's sort of oppressive to, especially for women, you know, um, it's like it's like the culture puts on women this pressure to create mystique with their bodies and the way they dress and and you just see obviously there's like close-ups on like the breasts of the of the tribal women as if to say look this is a breast (laughs) you know like (laughs) yeah uh, why why is this um so mystified in in western civilization and of course there's all kinds of movements in in the real world for you know directly related to this issue yeah as opposed to like the weather the meteorologists or workers or whatever they are um that are out with the weather balloons um and the the female scientists who they're all just you know ogling ogling yeah yeah yeah. that's what yeah um and, and there, you you see you see like no one is happy with this arrangement. The woman, you know, is is maybe in danger. It sort of it sort of seems predatory the way the guys are kind of sweating over her, mm-hmm. and and the men are just sort of uh, agonizing over you know with lust and uh, it's just like uh, who is this benefiting? How is this a good thing? And the guy like that lets the weather balloon go sort of does so out of spite, right? Or like as a distraction, seems like he does it purposefully. Um, I don't know. It's just, it is a strange scene of just like, it was literally like an old Looney Tunes cartoon with like all, all the dudes wolf whistling and they're like, Oh, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, as opposed to what we get, like you're saying, uh, you know, out in the bush um, with the, Abor- the Aboriginal tribe and, and the sort of, freedom that or freedom from the sort of stricture of you know you cover your body because it's sinful and all these sorts of things um yeah. which kind of is skipping ahead quite a bit but i'm, I'm going to forget about this if we don't talk about it now uh skipping ahead sort of toward the end when you have the scene after the the white hunters have shown up and killed all these water buffalo and all that sort of stuff and now the Aboriginal boy has sort of entered this kind of trance-like state, and he has on these sort of ritual, uh, this sort of ritual paint that kind of looks like a skeleton. Um, and he shows up at the the frame, like the deserted farmhouse. It's just sort of a frame of a house now, and the girl is is topless, and he sort of shows up and is it seems kind of creepy to us, but um, starts doing a sort of ritualistic dance. And I've seen different places of them talk about it as a mating dance. And she, you know, is disturbed by it. And like run, the first thing she does is run and cover herself. Right. Which is not unusual, but I think it's kind of symbolic here. Of, um, he, he's being sort of, it's become sort of sexualized, sort of mating ritual type thing. But he's not being sort of overtly aggressive about it. He remains outside of the house. Yeah, it seems like it's um, it's an invitation. Yeah, it's like a, a sanctioned, ritualized invitation, and and she, uh, her natural reaction, you know, she is fear, but it's also 
uh, confusion. Like she yes. doesn't understand. Yes. And so he, you know, he dances all night seemingly. And then in the morning they find him sort of dead hanging in the, in the tree. Um, and apparently I think that's, I've seen in some other films, I'm not an expert in this by any means, but some Aboriginal tribes would bury their dead in trees. Um, I'm not sure what the significance is, but I think that's what's represented there. And also you see the father earlier in the film hanging in a Mm -hmm. tree. Um, But yeah, so like you're saying, it's this kind of invitation. It's something that can be turned down and she does turn it down. And a big part of that, like you're saying also is the sort of lack of understanding. And that's a big thing in the whole film is just sort of lack of understanding um, the impossibility of translation. I was going to say, I love how there's no, uh, translation when when he speaks there's mm-hmm. no I, I had the subtitles on uh, just because for whatever reason like my Roku I can't get the freaking subtitles off anything <laughs> I watch has subtitles on it now and and so the subtitles were on and there's there's no translation yeah I, I tend to watch everything with subtitles anyway just because Lava likes to um, I get distracted I, by them sometimes <laughs> I really like it. You catch a lot of things. I had, I had a, a film class um, in undergrad and there was a student who was hard of hearing in the class. And the professor was just like in the first class was just like, Hey, we're going to watch everything with subtitles on it, you know, deal with it. And, you know, some people were like <laughs> kind of pissed off and, you know, I don't care. And, Anyway, we watched, you know, 12 movies that semester with the subtitles on and some of the movies I had seen before. And I realized I caught so much more because every little piece of dialogue you're forced to see and read and, uh, you know, sort of grapple with more. So, yeah. uh, and, and some stuff that's maybe hard to hear is, you know, is shown in the subtitles. So I, I'm a, I'm a fan of them. Oh yeah. And, and I've been watching, watching stuff with them for years now because a lot of likes them and before that uh had a friend who was also kind of hard of hearing and he watched everything with subtitles so if we were watching something it had subtitles on um so it's not you know i i'm also kind of used to it which is uh, probably one reason why i don't see watching foreign films as an obstacle because it's like oh it's normal <laughs> like i would read anyway the, the only time that i'm not well it, it doesn't really bother me but the only time that it's kind of a drag is if i'm watching like stand-up comedy or something because i'll read the joke before it's delivered yeah um, so yeah, i'm like yeah. oh i, I should have just uh, like, no the worst attention. have you ever watched jeopardy with the captions on <laughs> no but the yeah, worst. that would because they give you the answers ahead of time <laughs> no i i don't think i've ever done that but yeah that makes a lot of sense um anyway uh shit what were we talking? oh yeah so the movie's not subtitled um, or at least, you know, his, what he's saying is not subtitled and that, that matters because we don't get any kind of understanding of what's going on. And there are a couple of scenes where, uh, it's sort of that part that idea is kind of emphasized. One of them is when he's talking to her in the little like house skeleton thing. Um, and he seems like he's saying something that's like substantial to her, but she just like, doesn't understand. She's listening to him, but she doesn't really get what he's saying. Um, and then I think in that same scene, sort of toward the end of it, the you can tell that the boy, the little boy, has sort of, I guess because he's a kid and they can kind of pick up on communication or language a little bit faster. Yeah. Uh, he has sort of started to understand 
not not like directly understand every word, but he sort of gets the gist of what's trying to be he's, communicated. He's less indoctrinated to the ideology that is inherent in the English language. Yeah. And and so he can communicate in a mu- in a more uh, authentic or you know, in some sort of realm outside of you know, the political realities of the English language, uh, which is one of my favorite parts is when he is, uh, you know, the little boy is talking to the Aboriginal. Is he, is, is there a character name associated with this? I, I just keep calling him the Aboriginal I man. I think so. Uh, Let me check. Um, <laughs> well, on Wikipedia, he's just black boy, but. So Richard Wright. <laughs> um, so. Now, um, what was I going to say? Oh, it's, it's when the sister asks her brother, you know, ask him how long and you, uh, how long till we get there? And the little boy makes some hand motions and it, it looks like they go like five, three. And then the, the Aboriginal guy's answer is he just holds up one finger and you see he's asked, the little boy's asked how long and basically he says, we'll, we'll be there today. We'll be at our destination today. Um, but yeah, that, that, uh, ability to communicate outside of, like I said, a politically rooted, uh, language as, as you know, most languages are, um, is a, is a, a really smart aspect of the movie. Yeah, for sure. And, and so, so kind of going back to this, this climactic sort of scene, you see, you know, he's doing his dance and, and the girl um, stays inside and, you know, tells her brother we're going to be leaving him tomorrow and all that sort of stuff. So she literally is standing sort of inside of the skeleton of this representative of uh, structure of, you know, Western civilization while he's outside sort of begging her to come join him. Mm-hmm. And she decides to not cross that line, to cross that barrier and stay inside. Uh, sort of remain within the bounds of what she what is comfortable and sort of a known quantity for her yeah and it's just it's sort of tragic you see at the end she's like marrying some sort of some uh, with sideburns some uh uh what's uh ivanka's husband's name kushner (laughs) yeah it's some sort of approximate of kushner um it's like oh i'm gonna get a promotion and we're going to get it. We're going to go for a vacation on the Gold Coast. And she's just sort of like staring off into the distance. Yeah, because she has no choice at all, right? Yeah, she's smoking a cigarette, like cutting up some liver. Um, <laughs> it's, I don't know, it's a very, like you like you said earlier, it's not subtle. <laughs> yeah. It just kind of bashes you over the head of like, oh, what could have been. And then there's the um, voiceover at the very end uh, reading. Oh, poem. of the poem, yeah. And what I was did, it by? Was it like Byron or something? No, it's a Houseman, A. Houseman. Not even close. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, which again is not not subtle at all, even. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not subtle uh, poetry there. Um, yeah, that's how the the movie more or less concludes. And now we can kind of backtrack and talk about some things that we we've missed so far. And one thing I want to mention, I kind of mentioned it at the beginning, is there's a lot of shots of wildlife um, mm-hmm. kind of used as transitions almost where they're just like, you know, they're moving from one spot to the next. And so you get like a bunch of shots of different kinds of lizards 
there's a lizard eating a lizard. You know, there's the snakes in the trees. The scene when they're asleep is sort of especially interesting because they're sleeping at this like little oasis and there are all these snakes in the trees. And my first thought was like, that's going to be an issue. Like maybe that's how the Aboriginal boy enters. He saves them from the snakes, but then that ends up not mattering. And then there's like the wombat that wanders up to the little boy and is like not interested and just walks away. I, I, I love that wombat for some reason. Hey, he was, he was a good wombat. I kind of like made little, a note like of a it. a little dog. I wrote, I wrote down uh, wombat is not interested. <laughs> well, the, you, you said the, the snake doesn't matter, which is a, uh, an interesting way to put that. And it just made me think like, you know, how significant a snake is in Western culture yeah. and Christian culture and, and how we're conditioned to think that the snake will be some sort of symbol of evil and temptation. And it's like, no, the snake is just this animal that, yeah. you know, is crawling through the tree and then they move on. Yeah, and and th- that's another important thing is the animals, as they're presented, are are never really a danger to anyone. Uh, there's the water buffalo that he's that the Aboriginal boy is, is wrestling at one point, mm-hmm. um, but even that's like not super dangerous, I would say. And then the yeah, then the hunters come in and kill it, and he he cries his single Native American tear. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> that was uh, that was maybe the the hardest part to watch. Uh, that just seemed very, uh, uh, just like a punch in the face in terms of subtlety. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know, sometimes it's okay to kind of really go over the top if you feel like yeah, your espe- especially is in 1971. It's like you can't really fault a film that is kind of uh, paving the way. You know what I'm saying? You can't you can't blaze new territory subtly. Yeah, and you know it's kind of like we talked about with uh, Bong Joon Ho. His movies are not very subtle. Parasite may be the most subtle, but even then, it's not really. You know, it's kind of yeah. staring you in the face. Yeah, but like Oak Joe, subtle Snowpiercer. compared to Snowpiercer and Oak Joe, which yeah. are just sledgehammers. Yeah. Um. So this is kind of more in, in in that vein, but I think it's I think it's uh successful. You know, not in this film is well thought of. It's in criterion collection which is not the measure of success but you know it does it doesn't mean nothing um and it generally I'll, means some sort of cultural relevance yeah. you know some sort of uh contribution to film culture yeah and i would imagine like again not an expert but i would imagine that in the cinema of australia this is considered to be like a kind of a touchstone maybe yeah, i'm just talking uh, out of my ass but I feel yeah, like that's, that's true. I mean, it's a, I think, I think it's a minor classic. It, it just, um, and it's a uh, rogue is his own cinematographer, at least on this film. And ju- just for the aesthetic pleasures of it, it's, you know, worth a, worth a watch. Uh, it's some of maybe, maybe it's strongest feature in my opinion is the, um, is the cinematography. There's just, I think it's the cover of the criterion edition where you see the Aboriginal guy, um, sort of stand, I think he's standing on one leg and it's yeah, on uh, the car. magic, magic hour. And it's like, you know, this twilight and, uh, it's just a beautiful shot. He's sort of on the left side of the frame. Um, yeah. So there's, there's several shots that are just 
uh, worthy. Have you seen the the cover of the the Criterion like physical release? Uh, yeah, I think that's it. I think. And he's standing on top of the burning car. Oh no, I've not seen that cover. Uh, you should you should look that up because it, it's the same kind of picture you're talking about. But he's standing on top of the the burning car that you know the father is has uh, arsonized. That's cool. I'm going to look it up right now. Yeah, we'll get your reaction live on on tape here. So that's you. You said walk about criterion mm-hmm. uh, also it's half off right now if you want to buy it oh i have seen this i just like didn't understand its significance oh it is 13.59 that's a great price yeah uh i have seen this but i've never paid attention to it and that is a great uh piece of cover art it is and that's a big help to to rogue in making this film look as good as it does, even though it still has that kind of 1970s look where it's not, everything's not super sharp and polished, which is, I still enjoy, is he's working with this beautiful landscape of the outback and it's sort of this expansive, you know, ever, ever going desert in all directions. And you see it kind of in the scene where the uh, boy and girl are on top of a, a ridge and they're looking out and they think they see the ocean or the little boy at least thinks he sees the sea. Mm-hmm. And he's asking, like, what sea is that? And she's like, I don't really know. And then they, it's just more desert. Right? Um, yeah. But, yeah, he really, and Rogue really, like we're saying with all the shots of the wildlife, he, he tries to sort of use all of it that's at, that's at his disposal. Yeah. Um, and I think the, it's very interesting. We have a sort of connotation in the, in Western culture, um, with a uh, desert as wasteland. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- something I've been thinking about a lot, and I just, I just finished a, a book uh, on uh, eco-psychology that was uh, compiled by Theodore Rosak. Uh, I don't know if you know that name. Um, I don't the, think so. The late Theodore Rosak. He's, he's written several. R-O-S-I-C-K. Yeah, R O S Z A K, I believe. Uh, okay. Um, interesting, interesting thinker. He wrote the book uh, "The Cult of Information," I think, in the eighties, and uh, the making of a counterculture. Ma- making of a counterculture. Uh, okay. Yeah, That's- yeah, yeah. He's a he's a really interesting thinker. I sent you. I think I sent you a video of him talking about yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. eco psychology. Anyway, I just finished his. Uh, the book he compiled the several uh, essays about eco psychology and it had me, I was on my brain watching this movie and it's never outright said in this book, but a kind of implicit notion in eco psychology is that nature or, or I should start and say culture kind of functions. Um, if you apply, um, kind of psychotherapeutic principles uh, to uh, on a, on a larger scale culture sort of functions as an ego and nature sort of functions as the unconscious. And, and, and that is why I think you see the, you know, ubiquitous trope of nature as the place of healing the same way 
an individual ego is sort of healed by connection to, you know, the unconscious making unconscious, uh, realities conscious and, and integrating them into your, into your ego. Um, you see culture can only be healed through a conscious, uh, integration of nature and, and and there's all kinds of other parallels of like uh, repression as like uh, you know toxic the way the way we sort of didn't culture industrial culture anyway denies um, its dependence on nature and creates sort of toxic waste uh, and then there's the whole sort of theory of climate change as the return of the repressed. You know, you deny nature long enough, eventually it kind of asserts itself. Uh, anyway, th- those are just thoughts going about in my mind as I watch this movie, uh, which I think fits into that trope, which is which is a good trope of, you know, these uh, the brother and the sister have to leave culture uh, and, and understand the relationship between culture and nature in order to heal in order to function uh, to have a better grasp on their place in the world yeah and uh you know i like that we're getting into some good like hippy dippy mind mm-hmm. freak territory i'm a big fan of that uh, but <laughs> i do i do like that what, what was the name of this book it's just called eco psychology restoring something healing the mind restoring the earth healing the mind i think is what it's called it's a yeah. I, it's a big you know big academic book and i read it in like a week it was uh pretty fascinating some of it like you said some of it is a little too hippy dippy for me a little too uh new agey but maybe half of the essays are like really good that that's kind of you know the as as should be evident, I do a lot of reading of like environmental writing, stuff like that. Um, but kind of a blind spot for me is that sort of era of like sixties, seventies, uh, type stuff, except for like, you know, Edward Abbey and Annie Dillard and that kind of stuff. But the, the more sort of, um, I don't know what, those those are sort of like canonical, canonical american edward mm-hmm. abbey annie dillard even wendell berry now to an extent yeah are, have sort of been canonized they're sort of like the the 1970s version of like you know thoreau in the century before um but there's eco psychology to me is like more than fascinating it's like necessary um one point I should make that I, that I think we've talked about on this podcast before that has sort of been clarified for me in reading that book is um, we've talked about the failure of like statistics and sort of quantified information to make any sort of real change, make any difference in in uh, explaining the climate catastrophe or converting people uh, to understanding better the climate catastrophe. And I think if you think about the kind of analog I pointed out earlier about the psychotherapeutic process, 
um, you know, someone spouting statistics at you about climate change is sort of like you being in therapy, you know, for some sort of issue and your friend just like logically telling you what you're doing wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like that is not how a person heals. Uh, It's also not how a culture heals uh, by, you know, just by understanding logical uh, uh, sort of quantified problems. That is, that is not what makes an individual change and it's not what makes a culture change. Um, and, and in fact, therapy kind of exists, you know, professional therapy kind of exists to, uh, to problematize that, uh, uh, that kind of shaming. Cause that's really what it amounts to, uh, you know, spouting these, uh, environmental decline statistics. It's just kind of a, a shaming tactic. Um, anyway, I, I think there's a lot to be gained from thinking about, um, climate change as sort of a cultural, uh, neurosis, uh, that can be understood through, a, a, a metaphor of, you know, psychotherapy. Yeah. No. And I, and what you're just saying, um, about, you know, spouting off all those statistics as being sort of a shame on you sort of rhetorical move. Um, it makes me think of, uh, I was reading a book that we've talked about before, uh, maybe not on the podcast, but, uh, faith in nature, but Thomas R. Dunlap. Yeah. I read the, I think I read the introduction to that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's called faith in nature, environmentalism as religious quest. And there's a lot of stuff in it. it it's, it's really useful for kind of actually for understanding just kind of the environmental movement in general, specifically through these, these writers um, and uh, with a focus on their sort of how they've turned environmentalism into sort of its own kind of faith uh, in different sorts of ways. But at one point he's talking about uh, Dunlap's talking about um, how they approach the environment and sort of human action, human interaction with the environment with a kind of, humility as opposed to sort of other ways of interacting with it, like dominance or dominion or anything like that. Uh, and it kind of made me think, and I don't, I don't remember if Dunlap says this specifically, but like confronting environmental catastrophe, uh, should be done with a sort of air of humility sort of, and he sort of compares it to the, the humility of, of one who believes of a believer. I don't know why I had to say one who believes as if there's not a word for that. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, he talks about humility and I think that is sort of like, like you're saying is what's missing in a lot of climate change discourse is a lack of humility. And instead it takes on a tone of sort of allegation or blame or shame. Uh, and that's what sort of automatically causes some people to shut down or to be sort of antagonistic and return that sort of thing. Well, and, and I think maybe the problem lies in the fact that it's very difficult to critique a lack of humility because that's essentially what, you know, envir- environmentalists in a lot of ways are critiquing dominion, which is uh, the way that concept has manifested in culture is a total lack of humility. And so it seems counterintuitive to people, I think, to critique a lack of humility with a lack of humility. But if you think about it, 
you know, for a second, you realize that's the only way to critique a lack of humility uh, is is with you know yourself having a lack of humility. It, it becomes like a like a death penalty sort of logic. Like, oh, you killed someone. Let uh, I'm going to kill you. Oh, you lack humility. Let me be an arrogant piece of shit in critiquing you. It's like it's like uh, you're both living in the glass house, just flinging rocks at each other. That kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, but yeah, that, that that's come up in my my class before and talking about. Um, you know, why some people have such a visceral reaction to a lot of uh, climate change discourse. Um, I think we were talking about gauche or something. I don't remember. But um, when you start implicating people, which the big the big secret, the spoiler is that we're all implicated. Uh, people start to, you know, get defensive. And, you know, it's a, it's a reasonable human. Re- well, reasonable is not the right word. It's an expected human reaction. Um, but it's one that you know, we have to figure out how to get around in some sort of way other than waiting for terrible shit to happen and then being like, Hey, are you on board now? Yeah. And, and defensiveness is a good way to put it. And I think that explains why older people, it seems have a, a harder time. And maybe we've talked about this before. Um, it climate change problematizes older generations entire lives like the the things that comprise their some of their best memories you know what i'm saying they're just like um it it seems like one aspect that really gets uh, of of uh for instance the green new deal that really gets under conservatives skin uh, of an older generation is uh is the prospect of airline travel being drastically reduced or even done away with. And, and I think it's because it's, sir, it, you know, it, it occupies such a mythological place um, in people's minds, especially, you know, people in their sixties and seventies now who can still remember when flying, like you, you, you put on a, uh, a suit and a tie to fly it was like a privilege and a luxury and a respectable thing um, all that to say climate change problematizes people's childhoods and and thus problematizes their mythology and their ideology and 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 so their whole lives and that's a painful thing yeah and to sort of make a parallel to, to what's going on right now, we have, uh, you know, the COVID-19 outbreak and a lot of people being quarantined. Um, and you're seeing, surprisingly, even though this is like a direct threat to their existence, um, older people sort of, and younger people too, um, being openly combative and saying, well, you know, this, I'm not going to worry about it. It's just the normal flu and everybody's freaking out for no reason. Um and so because of, you know, that kind of attitude, plus, you know, a number of other factors, not having proper supplies, not being prepared for such a, a pandemic, um, it's it's sort of estimated that there will be, you know, millions of deaths from this. And most of them will be the older generation who are uh, or people with, you know, a prior uh, prior health issues that compromise their yeah. immune systems. Um, and, and so you're seeing right now. Um, kind of across the world uh, what I think 
sort of portends what could happen in the future with reduced travel, more people staying home, more people telecommuting to work, that sort of stuff. I have to telecommute to work and, and teach online now. Um, yeah, me too. And so, you know, and you have large swaths of, of Italy under quarantine, especially in the north. And surprisingly, this is this is along. I'm going to tell like two different stories that I think is interesting. That I think are interesting. One of them is that right now in northern Italy, they were um, I saw a thing that was like a measurement of pollution from that area, from that region. And since it's been sort of on lockdown, on quarantine, um, that pollution has dropped drastically because people aren't, you know, buzzing around in cars as much, aren't traveling as much, yeah. that sort of stuff. Um, it kind of reminds me that in the aftermath of nine uh, eleven, when air travel was kind of shut down for a while, um, mm-hmm. there was a sort of increase in, I'm going to mess up the details of this, but there was a kind of increase in, in well activity, wells in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and people sort of s- speculate that it's because air traffic control and all the sort of radio signals and stuff sort of mess with their, their communication sort of you know make them go crazy a little bit yeah yeah, um, yeah. uh so it just sort of thing when you when things happen and they're always sort of they have to be catastrophic for anyone to take them seriously and do anything of this magnitude uh you see these sort of really fascinating um but ultimately kind of always sort of positive effects of them so yeah it's not great that northern italy is is sort of under quarantine but a lack of pollution or a reduction of pollution is is a net positive thing like objectively good uh so it, it you, ju- you just wish it change. didn't require something so drastic to make yes. this so uh clear to people yes and a lot of people are already sort of writing about how or you know we're talking about how this is just sort of in the future it'll probably be more like this and part of it is sort of capitalism saying well we don't have to have you actually be here in person to profit from your labor so why can't you work from home? That all that sort of stuff, but I think you'll see sort of drawbacks. Sort of um, what's the word like degrowth, which has been championed mm-hmm. by a lot of people. There's actually I can't remember the person's name that wrote the book Degrowth about you know how do you combat climate change and sort of learn to live with it. Well, you have to degrow the economies and and all that sort of stuff. So yeah it's uh you mentioned nine eleven it's this uh this is the strangest thing i think in american life uh since nine eleven in terms of everyone you know everyone's talking about the same thing maybe the recession two thousand seven and eight um, yeah I, I saw a a meme i think that said climate change should hire coronavirus's publicist. <laughs> yeah. But there's a there's a fundamental difference. Uh, people understand an immediate people understand the flu. Um, and they understand individual risks. They don't understand sociological global risks, you know. Yeah, and that's what uh, People they don't have, understand slow violence. No, and, and people have been talking about uh, the sort of reaction from South Korea, China, and Vietnam, um, and conservatives in the United States chalk that up to like, oh, they're not, they don't have freedom. Like they're 
they're under the, these sort of autocratic rulers and that's why they were able to do these things. But there's also that they have those societies. And again, being kind of, kind of generalizing here, they have more of an understanding of society as a collective, as opposed to this, you know, basket of, of atomized individuals. Right. They, they also, I don't know how this is going to sound, but they also have uh, an understanding of the precarity of life. Yes. Um, you know, in America, we just bullshit ourselves about, you know, we have this sort of autonomous, invincible kind of mythology, shining city on a hill. And that's why everyone was so fucked up with 9-11 is because they just and and uh, Katrina, uh, because, you know, the refrain you always hear is like, oh, I just never thought it could happen here. It's like, why are we you know, why do you think we're immune you know, that's that's an interesting choice of words, a metaphor. Uh, why are we immune to that? Uh, we're not. We're not immune to any of the uh, things that corrupt or or in any way negatively impact a culture. We're just we're just another culture. Yeah. And have you seen um, just still thinking about think you know these the difference between American culture and these other ones and how we see it sort of playing out directly. You have, I can't, I was Googling trying to find it, but I, I can't find it. But there was a, there's an American pharmaceutical company that has developed what a lot of people think of as being kind of the most promising drug for treating uh coronavirus or I, I think I found out and maybe again, maybe I'm stupid, but it's COVID-19 and coronaviruses are a specific kind of virus that includes SARS and MERS and these other kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but COVID-19, they, so they have what a lot of people consider to be the most promising drug for uh, treating it or being a kind of uh, step toward a vaccine. And Robitussin? Yeah, yeah so you got to rub it in real good and you got to get <laughs> Vicks Vapor up. Um, but there's um, they're sort of in a, there's a lawsuit right now because the Chinese government wants to you know, get a hold of the drug and make it widely available for free. And this company is saying, no, we want to be able to profit from this. So we're not going to let you do that, um, which is like the most you want to talk about being ham fisted, not walk about this thing that's happening. <laughs> yeah. um, it's the most it's sort of direct disaster capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. Like in on a worldwide scale. And it's just sort of fascinating to and incredibly depressing to think about. And, you know, so people are talking about like, you know, Vietnam kind of communist country basically and their response was so quick and so thorough that they've basically they're they're fine south korea had you know a huge spike in cases but then they tested so many people and so you have this thing where their population compared to the u.s is relatively small but they tested you know astronomically more people than we have i saw i saw uh, the numbers uh maybe four or five days ago and it said for the past two weeks, Korea has tested 20,000 people every single day. And at that point, uh, the United States had in total uh, tested 11,000 people. Yeah. So our entire total was a little more than half of a one-day total for Korea. Yeah. And, the, you know, it, it just – the hits keep on coming. They just, like, announced this bill to give people paid time off, but it, it – disqualifies or doesn't include like 80% of the workforce in the country, you know, just but- have you, have you noticed the, uh, the gener the, like the level of generality that countries are using 
to announce their uh, shutdowns. Like Italy, the the prime minister was just like, uh, is it prime minister, president? I can't remember what Italy is. But uh, what's up? The presidente. Presidente. No, I don't know. <laughs> um, you're a racist. But uh, he said, it's like, it's a very interesting rhetorical move how countries are doing this. They're saying in a, a sort of big sweeping announcement that oh, Italy is shutting down. Uh, uh, the country, own, the only people who will be allowed to travel and, and who should feel free to, you know, to move about in the country are people uh, going to work and people uh, moving, you know, traveling for medical reasons and any, anything that is deemed justifiable, you know, in the government's eyes or whatever. It's like, that's everything. I mean, that, that's uh, with the exception of like tourism, domestic tourism, that's everything. Um, like that work, that's work is why people get up and leave the house every morning, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, uh, it's a very interesting rhetorical thing happening that uh, I don't think is is having as drastic of an impact on the sort of daily life of most people as as is suggested by the kind of re- re- rhetoric and tone of these announcements. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. And and I don't know. I gotta. Like we were saying, like disaster capitalism, I have to imagine that what governments will take from this is all the wrong lessons about how much power they can exert over their population. Yeah. Um, You'll see it used for authoritarian purposes, I'm pretty sure. Um, So, you know. Yeah. You you were talking about uh, disaster capitalism on a global scale. Here's disaster capitalism on a very small scale. I saw a story about a uh, an elementary school kid who uh, somehow came to have a, hand san- a bottle of hand sanitizer and the school was out and he was charging his classmates like a dollar a squirt. Yeah, I heard about that. um and there was also the guy that was this was in tennessee somewhere i think he bought like seventeen thousand bottles of hand sanitizer and was selling them on amazon for like you know extremely inflated prices and then amazon found out and banned him for price gouging and so he's got a garage full of antibacterial supplies yeah Um, more power Uh, like fuck that guy yeah there was a a story in new in the new york times and he was like i don't want to be known as the guy that bought all this stuff to sell it for more money it's like well what the fuck do you think is gonna happen oh it, maybe you shouldn't have bought all that stuff to sell for more money yeah everybody on twitter is like if this were an earlier time we would all you know like go to that dude's house and like chuck him into the river or something like throw him <laughs> over the city wall um you know i i don't know it's just i i can't imagine like and it was funny here because you know we're, we're not we're close to atlanta but not that close and so people weren't really worried about it here for a while so everything's sort of been coming in slower it's kind of like that mark twain joke about how if the world ends he'll just go to kentucky because everything happens there five years late uh, and and so or you know however long the time is supposed to be so here we went to kroger uh to like get supplies and stuff and and there was still like a bunch of toilet paper and stuff and then a couple of days later we're like okay we should go and like really 
stock up on some things, like not go overboard, but, you know, buy enough stuff that we could like hang out at home for a few days. And so we go and the toilet paper is just gone, wiped yeah. out. Um, all the other stuff that's like not important, but people hoard for some reason, gone. Um, and it's just sort of, it's, it, I don't know, disheartening. People are just at their core, very like dumb, easily frightened animals. <laughs> we, we keep finding out. Well, uh, but then that just brings up the question, like, why are people not, you know, overreacting to climate change? I don't know. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, no, because this is like, the, the, this is scary, but like the, the main reason they want people to self quarantine is, is to limit the spread. So we don't kind of overwhelm the medical infrastructure. Right. Yeah. Um, which is, is a good, noble, like proper purpose. Um, but with climate change, it's like, that's like, that's going to affect everyone. Right. That's not, it's not like rising sea levels and all this stuff is only going to affect people 60 or older. This is like, the entire human race. Right. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it all goes back to the fact that it's more nebulous and sort of hard to understand, hard to sort of see on a longer time scale. Whereas since COVID-19 is so sort of close to the flu, not like biologically, but in the understanding of the general population, they see it as this thing that's like immediate. It'll be here for a few months and it's gone. So we just need to like, hunker down and, and wait it out. Or if you're yeah, some people, you need to go to red Robin and, and, and live your life. And my, my mom was trying to sort of guilt trip me for not coming to my niece's, uh, birthday dinner mm-hmm. today, which was at a hibachi restaurant. And my mom was like, Oh, she'll be, my niece will be disappointed that, I, that I'm not there. And I just texted her back hibachi in a pandemic is that a george saunders story <laughs> it's that uh, very well could be yeah, uh that's yeah i can't think of a worse place to be a communal eating a communal like public restaurant no i'm not going no yeah and, and it's kind of to be honest, what kind of worries me the most um, about it is because I feel like, you know, maybe I'm not the healthiest person, but if I were to actually contract it, I think I would ultimately ultimately be okay. Um, you know, I know some pe- you know, older people in my life. I worry about them. I have, I have some people who uh, have, you know, uh, immune system issues. I kind of worry about them a little bit. But for me, I'm like, it would suck, but I think I would be fine. I think lava would be okay. I don't think it. I don't think the dog can get it. So, you know, it's like. Most of the people in my life, I feel like would be okay. There was another meme. Apparently, everyone's just at home making memes. Uh, The (laughs) World Health Organization cleared cleared the canine population, aka who let the dogs out. (laughs) Yes, Uh, (laughs) but anyway, what I was what kind of the point I was uh, slowly getting to is that that's not what worries me. What worries me is like the drastic effect it's having on the economy and how we're sort of on the precipice of another massive depression or, you know, just outright crash. Um, because you think about like canceling the NCAA tournament, postponing, or maybe eventually canceling the NBA season, all this sort of stuff. And just sort of millions, billions of dollars. It's sort of not going to be 
you know, put into circulation, South by Southwest and other festivals getting canceled. I was going to go to an academic conference in New Orleans and that got canceled. I'm uh, sorry. Are you okay? I mean, I'm, let me tell you what, uh, <laughs> I, I wrote an extra long diary entry that night. Um, <laughs> but there's that, that sort of scares me because when the economy starts to like go in the tank, people get real fidgety, real fast. Um, and I just, I don't know if, if it's this bad when it's sort of at the beginning, if things keep going and sort of escalating and continuing, I kind of yeah. shudder to think what could come out the other end. And it doesn't even really matter. I've been sort of talking about this with a friend. Like it doesn't really matter the science behind this. Like what matters is how people perceive it, how people react to it. Because in terms of the economic impact, because how people perceive it will impact how people react financially and, uh, you know, and that is what affects the economy. So the, the clear uh, communication of the information is very important. And unfortunately in the United States, our leadership is not equipped for clear, truthful communication. No, not at all. And there's still, you know, high-ranking government officials telling everybody that, oh, it's fine. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And, like and, and everyone's like, oh, Trump, Trump got tested. They, you know, Trump got tested. He, he didn't have it. It's like, do you think that if he did get tested and it, and he did have the coronavirus, that they would tell you that? <laughs> like, yeah. uh, talk about fake news. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's like, it, and it's, it sucks, but like it, I, can almost guarantee that it like will get people killed. And, and here's, here's a, an aspect of this. I haven't heard many people talking about. I feel so bad for the people who have it. I I was thinking about this because maybe last week it was like, uh, you know, I'm in Tennessee and, and you heard, Oh, it's the first case of coronavirus. that's in Franklin, you know, 30 miles away. And, and no one, is talking about uh, a person, an individual being sick. It's, it's this sociological sort of fear factor. Um, and it, it's just sort of like weaponizing human beings. You know, I was like, I went to the store today and I just sort of felt kind of fearful of everyone. Like, Oh, is, does this person have it? Does this person have it? And, and it's just a real quick, way um i mean when when you're you have to recognize your vulnerability and your humanity but at the same time like i said it's sort of weaponizing everyone else's vulnerability or or uh demonizing everyone else's vulnerability and i I hate the way that this is being talked about in, in such impersonal terms. You don't really, if you watch the news, you don't really hear a lot from the people who have coronavirus and it's, and it's, I mean, not to sound cliche, but it's just this sort of like gospel kind of biblical leper culture, you know, get the fuck out of here. We don't want it. And it's like, I don't know. It's just, uh, 
it just selfishness just surfaces very quickly in 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 a time like this not that we've ever been a part of times a time like this you know so you know if if you listen regularly and are a fan of ours or, or sort of recommendation or my recommendation personally is like to you know be cautious but don't be a dick about it like be be kind to people right and right now yeah. sort of the number one way that it's recommended you be kind is to sort of distance yourself a little bit but that doesn't well mean just like- just like if you know someone who has coronavirus you should just like skype the shit out of them and yeah. like to me it just seems fucking evil the way um the uh what's the word um it's just like the hyper logical way people are talking about it and 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 it's just all statistics um no one's really talking about the suffering that happens and and to the to the the demographic you were talking about who are just kind of dismissing it um which i i do don't get me wrong i do think there is some hyperbole going on but uh to dismiss it because only the old and the weak are going to die is, I mean, is essentially what like the, uh, the new Testament is about, <laughs> right? Uh, you cannot claim to like subscribe as so many people do in, in America to a Christian ideology and be comforted by the fact that, uh, this disease is only going to take out the mo- the weakest and most vulnerable. Like that is utterly hypocritical. Uh, that is why these drastic measures are worthy is because it will affect uh, elderly and those already at risk. Um, so yeah, like you said, be cautious. Don't put yourself in at undue risk, but also, uh, just be uh like you said be kind to each other this is a fucking nightmare yeah. and it's especially a nightmare for people who have it and something the a statistic that i take solace in which i usually don't take solace in statistics it's not really the place for it but uh there's that that sort of huge number of worldwide reported cases and at this point or at least last i saw at this point most of the people, majority of the people who have been tested and who have had it have recovered from it. So, you know, that's it, it just like you were saying, they're not lepers, right? People recover from this and then go back to leading what is a you know mostly normal life. But that, that stigma, I think, is going to stick around, right? Um, so- yeah, I, yeah. The, the hyperbole is causing that, that stigma. Um, and again, I'm not saying that that it's utter hyperbole, but there is some hyperbole. Um, and I think maybe that stems from the anxiety. Like what if this virus were, uh, deadly to anyone who got it? Clearly we do not have the infrastructure in place to deal with that. Um, so uh, you know, I don't know. We're we're very, we've we've gotten very far afield, which I I kind of suspected would would happen. But uh, maybe we'll have occasion next week to even go further into this. Yeah. So I mean, we can go ahead and uh, mention that. So uh, 
Next week, uh, we're going to uh, watch a, a pair of films directly related. Well, I, actually, I hope to God, not very directly related to, to what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to be watching from, oh, I didn't write that down the year for it. But from 2011, uh, we'll be watching Contagion. Uh, directed uh, Steven Soderbergh, Soderberg. is that right? Yep. And then okay. alongside that, we'll be watching uh, from 1995, Outbreak, directed by Wolfgang Peterson. Um, Wolfgang Amadeus Peterson. Yeah. Um, so obviously, these are two of the more well-known kind of pandemic movies, which is you know kind of its own subgenre. And it's not as if we're saying like, oh, here's your guide to dealing with the the pandemic. Um, but we just thought it would be useful to sort of watch these these over the top worst case scenarios kind of play out um, and sort of see what, if any, parallels we can kind of draw with the current situation. Yeah, because it's in a lot of ways why I suspected that we'd talk about this tonight. It's just kind of dishonest to not talk about it. Um, it's the elephant in the room. Um, so we got to talk about it cause we're going to talk and this is what's going on. Yeah. And, and you know, we could, and we will sort of go back to sort of our, our more kind of, well, I don't know. I wouldn't say our, what we watch is ever necessarily like quote unquote normal. We pick some kind of far afield stuff sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we won't, we won't be watching pandemic based films uh, <laughs> probably after that. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that's what we'll be doing next week. Is there anything about walkabout that we didn't cover that you wanted to mention? Uh, probably, but uh, <laughs> uh, overall, I guess we can just maybe sort of sum up with our overall impressions. I think uh, walkabout is, a uh an important movie especially given it's you know released in 1971 and it has the right uh you know in terms of this podcast's concerns uh i think it has the right perspective um it uh (laughs) sorry just a (laughs) A message just popped up on on the Skype from you that said, "What happened?" I think you probably sent that five minutes ago. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, it, it has a, a very uh, ahead of its time perspective on uh, and, and a refreshing willingness to question uh, Western civilization. A lot of the underlying assumptions sort of uh, reliance on technology and the rationalism that sort of engenders. Um, but, uh, like I said, my one critique is that it's a little unsubtle kind of beats you over the head with its message, but maybe forgivable in a, uh, trailblazing kind of film like this. Yeah. And it's also just, I don't know, it was enjoyable to watch. Um, it's shot well, you know, the, maybe some, not all of the cinema, uh, cinema (sighs) tech, cinematography no i'm trying to think of the uh, cinematographic yeah there we go is that the word cinematographic cinemagraphic uh not not all of the cinematography is going to hold up very well to sort of you know contemporary capabilities um but 
overall it's you know shot well it tells a compelling story it is over the top with with trying to pound that message home but um you know overall i think it's you know uh it was an enjoyable hour and 40 minutes yeah 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 yep 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 so uh watch your cock and balls out (laughs) there coronavirus is real and that would suck yeah so you know be be cautious be kind stock up on beans uh, <laughs> get your beans and your bullets your, get, yeah um watch contagion and outbreak and then uh, take a deep breath and, and a nap and cry because that's what those movies will cause probably yeah uh, so that's what we'll be doing next week so see y'all then